Hi, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. Today we're talking about the Jason Bourne series of action movies, especially the ones directed by Paul Greengrass. They're shaky, they're chaotic. Why are they so good? Welcome to Film Formally. So, Will, I, I have a thought on this episode. Do you know about the relationship between Weird Al Yankovic and the Elvis Costello song, Radio Radio? I don't. I don't. Whenever his band messes up a song in the concert, um, Weird Al goes, there's no reason to play a song here, and he stops the band, and then they immediately play Radio Radio. And that's what they play every single time they mess up a song. Apparently, they've played it multiple times at shows sometimes. <laughs> and um, this is obvious. This is, of course, as we all know, a reference to uh, Elvis Costello's appearance in the 1978 SNL episode where he was asked to play. Um, oh, which which song was it? You know the one. Um, uh, by by the um, by the producers of Elvis SNL. Elvis Costello was on SNL. Yeah, and he was banned from SNL because halfway through playing the song, because they told him not to play the song Radio Radio, he. Tells the band to stop, says there's no reason to do this song here, and they play Radio Radio. Um, and Weird Al turned that into, like, that's the, the fallback option whenever he screws up a song, which I think is great. My point is, I feel like our Radio Radio is like meat and potatoes, formal, formal analysis. When we run out of ideas, when, we, when we're like, oh, crap, we don't have an episode, we just, let's go like, oh, yeah, let's, let's watch a Paul Greengrass or a film that we're familiar with, and let's just analyze it, because that's, that's low-hanging fruit, Will. That's our, that's our Beyond Meat and Potatoes. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's back to basic stuff. So, well, okay, but on topic, Extreme Ways, they're back in POG form. Before we, all right, before we even introduce the topic, before we do anything else, can we talk about how like I'm I'm normally very against like someone thinking oh every movie in this franchise has to do this you know like it's so weird that all these movies end with extreme ways do a movie where Spider Man is a villain yeah uh, like I'm I'm totally fine with like I don't care like anything's up for grabs as long as it's good like you can make your superhero movie miserable that's fine just make it good I don't care like I have no problem with like I don't like the movies but like I have no problem with Zack Snyder making Superman kill people that's fine whatever just make the movies good um but i have to say that like there is absolutely no negotiating that every born movie until the end of time must end with extreme ways that's one thing okay let's talk about this in depth um yeah. uh, why why do they all end with extreme ways it and has to. Like, it has to but i i still i rewatched all these movies recently the entire series and i still have no good answer as to why these movies end with a moby needle drop all of them and you know eventually they had to resort to remixes and you know re-recordings they didn't have to they should have used the original every time <laughs> that's my biggest gripe. i think they're a remix than a different song yeah but i mean look these movies came out in a period where like you there was just more use of pop music like pop songs in movies like you could put a pop song before the credits of your movie and then lead into it you know and that's how we get like uh the end of eight mile with lose yourself right mm -hmm. like i just watched that the other day and they start lose yourself like 45 seconds before the credits even roll <laughs> it's great but, but it's like it, it, it'd be like if 
if like Doctor No ended on like Night Train or something, and then every single James Bond film ended with Night Train. Well, the difference um, is that Night Train is not extreme ways at the end of a board movie. It's just so. It's just here's the thing that uh, like synthetic string that opens it. It's just really good as a stinger. It's just like a super solid stinger. And because it's just been established as the end of the movie song, it's just a great song to signify, oh, this is it. This is the end of the movie. And we're leaving you on whatever, hopefully, awesome note we just left you on. It's a weirdly and... malleable stinger. Like, it, 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 yeah. every, every it, I movie, mean, it, I mean, in almost every, every one of the films, it serves a different function. Yeah. And I mean, like, 80% of why I think every one of these has to end with its streamways is because the stinger is so good. But you might as well put the rest of the song afterwards because I can't imagine much of a better follow-up to the stinger than the actual song Extreme Ways. You mean the uh, but, endless arpeggiated strings aren't an option? Uh, well, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure whenever we get a Born reboot, we'll get like the most intolerable uh, Extreme Ways reboot and they'll like have uh, terrible I don't arpeggiations think they're gonna, throughout it. And... I don't think they're going to reboot Born. Why not? Because he's not an iconic enough character. What other franchises does Universal have? I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not an expert on movie studios. Well, like I can tell you what Paramount owns, or Universal, or does Paramount even around? Like they've got American Pie. Okay. They've got the A Team. <laughs> they've got Beethoven. Can we talk about how um, the Born Ultimatum has a way better DI than either of the other Born movies in this trilogy, and that it's kind of a shame that supremacy and identity don't have as good a DI? No. So today we're talking about <laughs> how the Born movies, especially the ones directed by Paul Greengrass, have really chaotic techniques, visual techniques, and by visual techniques, I don't just mean cinematography, but I mean also editing. We're just going to talk a little bit about the landscape of action cinematography and editing uh, up to that point briefly and about how and why the Bourne movies were so radical and so influential, the Greengrass Bourne movies specifically. And uh, then we're going to go into a little bit of talking about how and why these crazy radical action techniques work. For all that people say, oh, this works or this doesn't work, there's surprisingly little down in the trenches analysis of okay, what exactly about the way this edit is structured is allowing the scene to function versus the countless born imitators? The most nuanced analyses tend to... Anyway, there's some good nuanced analyses. Um, I actually think uh, there's a video essay by, I believe, Patrick Willems about the, the ways that the car chase at the end of Born Supremacy and the car chase at the beginning of Quantum of Solace diverged. That actually, I think, diagnoses some of the issues well, but that's the exception. Um, I think most of the time... Even by you know such famed film scholars as David Bordwell, um, in his uh, intensified continuity analyses, um, I tend to find they often just lump films into these binary kind of camps of either you're chaos cinema or you're not, or maybe it's a spectrum. And occasionally, maybe one of these film scholars will cop to the idea that sometimes chaos cinema can be used pretty well, but Overall, it's a sign in the decline and fall of Western civilization, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a debate of tools and rules, right? And you and I are very tools guys. And sometimes theorists who oppose, quote unquote, chaos cinema are very rules oriented people. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, right? Like, it's a tool that can be used in a simple way as a jumping off point for other things. Part of my 
misgivings with a lot of analyses of the Bourne movies, the, the Greengrass Bourne movies especially, is that they stop their analysis at what's the motivation for this? And then that's it. And I think that Greengrass's usage of the technique goes a little deeper than that. Uh, I wouldn't call Greengrass one of the story directors ever or anything, but there's more going on than just, oh, is this is this shakiness just an expression of the Bourne character's mental state or not? That sort of thing is what I see a lot. And I think that misses the forest for the point, misses the trees for the forest, whatever. I guess the best way to describe what chaos cinema is is to kind of start with what it isn't, what the people who labeled chaos cinema as chaos cinema were opining for Mm -hmm. when they drew that distinction. I think it's easy now to underestimate just how massively influential Greengrass's Bourne movies were. It's not that movies weren't being cut quicker over um, the decades between, say, Seven Samurai and The Bourne Identity. It's not that the editing wasn't a bit faster. It's not that there wasn't a bit more use of camera work with movement or handheld work. There's a lot of, I mean, I think David Bordwell uh, in one of his many blog posts on the subject mentions that um, it feels like every decade or so this gets rediscovered that, that, oh, we have this run and gun style as if it hadn't existed in films like Body and Soul or Seven Days in May or you know, uh, Chimes at Midnight, Battle of Algiers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that kind of, I get that. I, I, sh- I think that's an important, valid point. But counterpoint to that is that just because something has an antecedent doesn't mean it's not doing something different. Right. And and the use of it specifically in an action film, I think, is distinct. And um, just while we're going down the rabbit hole. Go, but even go. with like, 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 even when you have like stuff like, Saving Private Ryan is often brought up as a major action motion picture that that that, that you know uh, what is the word um, prefigures the Bourne films. Although I think Saving Private Ryan is probably um, I don't I, you don't get the Bourne supremacy without Saving Private Ryan. I think, but that doesn't mean the Bourne supremacy isn't doing new stuff that is very distinctive from Saving Private Ryan. I think there's one of the biggest distinctions is that. These techniques, when they were used before, were generally not used in action movies as we generally think of the term. They were used in war movies. And the idea in these war mm-hmm. movies that they were used in, or, or other kinds of movies occasionally, for sure. But- I mean, Tony Scott was doing a lot of what Greengrass is doing on paper, even though I think very different end products. Yeah, and I think I think to a significantly less extreme degree. Yeah, Tony Scott's kind of late Rococo style, as I think I forget who coined that term in relation to Tony Scott, but that's perfect. Um, it really, I think started flowering after the after uh, the popularization of shaky cam. Yeah, and the thing about this technique, as it's used in say Chimes at Midnight, Saving Private Ryan, Battle of Algiers, is that. The point of the technique in these films is to express incoherence and chaos. It's a deliberate attempt to disrupt your spatial orientation, to uh, uh, disrupt your ability to take in comprehensively what is going on in the action. And I Mm. do not think that that is Greengrass's aim. And I think that's important to uh, an important distinction in how Greengrass approaches these techniques. But in any case, uh, yeah, I think I think a good kind of starting point for contextualizing it is if we just get into the Bourne identity and its style. 
Yeah, let's talk about it. Well, you're more <laughs> you're more of an authority on the born identity than I than I am. You, you spent more time thinking about it. Um, t- tell me about what. So directed by Doug Lehman, shot by Oliver Wood, the same cinematographer as the second and third born movies. But not the same cinematographer as the fourth and fifth Bourne movies. Interesting. Anyways, go ahead. Will. Which don't exist. They, but they don't. Yeah, we're, not, we're gonna. I think we're gonna gloss over. You know, let's touch on Jason Bourne eventually. But I want to gloss over the Bourne legacy. I don't think it's that relevant to our discussion. <laughs> yeah, it's it's there. It's not a totally uninteresting movie. Well, it's, it's a, but, anyways. Let's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so the Bourne identity was. It, uh, all, all the Bourne movies are extremely loose adaptations of the series of spy novels, and they were produced by Universal. Universal, for those who don't know, has long been kind of one of the smaller of the major mainstream studios. In fact, I think generally of the, like the quote unquote big ones, it has been pretty consistently in in kind of like the back and usually the smallest i think their biggest franchise is like the jurassic park or jurassic world franchise i think that's their biggest legacy franchise the popularity of the bond movies uh was long-standing and the oh my god what do you call the the movie <laughs> with the with the spy uh the, it's based on novels and it's like oh um, jean le Carre, the jack ryan jack ryan <laughs> Jack Ryan. I was thinking Jack it was Ryan. totally different. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Jack Ryan movies are popular. John Le Carre movies are not ever going to become like major mainstream smashes. You, no, Tinker Taylor. That was a but. No, that was not. That was not a. Oh, no. That was not a. Smash. I guess that's why we it didn't was, get Smiley's people. Um, yeah, we're never going to get Smiley's people. Oh. Which we. I'm. I've come to terms to that. We do we need spy, Smiley's yes. people? Not really. No. I'm slamming my desk. It's off mic. I'm slamming my desk. You can hear it probably. <laughs> we need Smiley's people. So they they funded this born movie and <laughs> this born. this movie goes through hell the born identity it it the movie is completely changed from the plot of the book other than the basic premise and a few general highly generalized plot details and they bring in a director who had done mostly very small independent movies Doug Lehman as was mentioned and say go direct this like big globe trotting spy thriller movie and it is pretty stylistically distinct from how most spy movies work. I mean, it's very, uh, it's very grounded. Um, it feels more like people are getting like when somebody gets punched in the face, there's more of a sense that it will continue to impact them in the moments after they are punched in the face. Well, I think there's actually, for those of you who want a deeper analysis of these films on a classical level um i recommend the spy hearts podcast they do a great series on this but yeah uh, i mean if we want to look at like what the spy landscape looked like at the time it was james bond and mission impossible oh no will we're stuck in a time loop and, <laughs> yeah but no at, at that point james bond and mission impossible mission impossible 2 the john woo entry and the latest james bond film to have come out as of born identities release was i believe die another day but obviously they came out the same year so they couldn't have you know influenced one another so we're talking world's not enough tomorrow never dies very like over the top fantastical stories big satellites in space shooting scary lasers the born identity was a seen as a corrective to that yeah yeah exactly um the born identity was an attempt in part to make kind of the nuts and bolts moment to moment tedium of spycraft um exciting right to bring some of the procedural appeal of say a uh, john le carre novel or film into a m- 
into an action thriller context that would have more mainstream appeal. I, I don't I don't think that it was approached in those explicit terms, but that's that's kind of the conceptual basis. Yeah, for the born identity. and you had the you know the you had this I think pretty brilliant. They could have their cake and cake and eat it too by having an everyman who's also a super spy, right? That that's pretty yeah. great. Um, that's a big yeah. reason why the why Jason Bourne does not work, but. We're assuming, as we do this podcast, that you've either watched these movies or just have a general sense of what they are. But it's about a dude who wakes up without memory and finds out that he's a super assassin spy man. And he's like, wow, the CIA is pretty bad. And then he takes on. The you know, and let's not bury the lead. The best one, Supremacy. Ultimatum is also very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I don't want to make any bones about our preferences here. Um, I think for both of us, the primary interest in this series is Paul Greengrass's directorial flowering. <laughs> yeah. Um, like that's. I mean, The Bourne Ultimatum has a pretty bad script, and yet I love that movie almost entirely because of the visual direction. That's how good it is. Um, yeah. And it's also got some good wipeouts. It has some good wipeouts. It has uh, David, Str- David Strathairn yelling a lot, which is always wonderful. Let's talk about the visuals of the Bourne Identity, Well, So the Bourne Identity style. So the editing of the movie is mostly rever- reserved. Um, it gets a bit faster during action scenes, even a little bit fast for the time it was made, which was 2002. Yeah, well, Cinemetrics um, is not a reliable site, but um, its average shot length, based on all the different reports, tends to be around three and a half to four and a half seconds. But, but but here's the thing, it doesn't feel as fast, it doesn't feel as chaotic because of the style of camera work and the coverage. Yeah, very fluid steady cam movements a lot in The Born Identity. Fluid um, compositions that immediately call attention to their geography. Camera stays back to medium shots that is like generally like from shots from the waist up of a person, for example, would be a medium shot or wide shots, which would be like shots that show people's entire bodies or more. Compositions generally have a foreground object that is the focus of the composition. They are generally in thirds. You know, the basic stuff that we all take for granted when we're not talking about stuff like the Bourne Supremacy. Um, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's based on the framework of traditional Hollywood cinema. Yeah, and I mean, and he also, uh, Lehman does cross the axis of action with uh, some of his edits. But what works about all this methodology is that because the steady cam is moving quite fluidly, it's panning or tilting, and because it's uh, always showing a fairly clear view of the action, there's a lot of room to cut to nice distinctive angles to clarify what's going on. You know, like you can cut when you want to make sure that this next part of the action is emphasized. And the action choreography itself has nice, clean, clear movement. I think that's something we should emphasize is that the choreography for these movies in, um, has some distinctions between it. Although yeah. I think it, a lot of those distinctions get super emphasized <laughs> depending on how it's directed. But it's, it's pretty clean, clear choreography, which makes it pretty easy to follow what's going on in a given scene, even if they cross the axis. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a good rules and tools example where a lot of people treat the axis of action as a rule when it's more of a tool. And the axis of action, for those who don't know, is the idea that if you have two subjects and they are facing each other, then the camera will always stay on one side of the subjects so that one person is always facing in the leftward direction in a shot and the other person's always facing the rightward direction in a shot and you can extrapolate that upward so if there's a group of people if there's four people for example if you had two people on one side and two people on the other side then you showed one person and he's facing to the right and then you cut and you showed the person 
who's should be facing to the right, but suddenly they're facing left. They go, wait, did he switch sides? What happened? There's a great gag about this in um, the movie Anchorman, where <laughs> these two gangs of news anchors are uh, facing off against each other. And uh, there's this cutting back and forth in the sh- shot reverse shot. But suddenly one of the guys who should be with one group of anchors is with the other group. And when it cuts back, one of the anchors goes, wait, get back here and uh, grabs him and brings him back over. But that, that's that's the axis of action. And the point is that because the action in Born Identity is very clean and clear and the camera work um, gives lots of room to kind of identify the space and the and the action going on, it's it's doable to cross the axis of action and we don't get just completely thrown out of what's happening. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's, the, the film's... The film is incoherent in other ways, though. And I think this is a key, key point where um, the film will, depending on the scene, feature one, locked off tripod shots, sometimes in front of really terrible green screens, by the way. Um, There's one scene that is not aged well in that regard. Um, Probably wasn't good at the time. Um, Cafeteria. Yeah. Um, Scenes in which there are, they make heavy use of crane shots, steady cams, and helicopters other scenes that are shot in a largely handheld style not even always just action scenes but scenes of heightened tension that sort of thing and sometimes it'll cut between these within the same scene there's this one scene in a train station that you pointed out earlier will where jason Bourne. there's a scene in a station yeah there's a scene where jason is going into a train station he's looking at the times and trains that are departing and the beginning of the scene uh, is the camera is very low for the most part, and it's quite shaky. It's a very wide angle. It's staying very close to Matt Damon, and it's uh, it's it's pretty chaotic. And there's a POV shot where we see what he's looking at with the train times, and then it cuts suddenly to this extremely slow, elegant dolly that moves around Matt Damon as the camera slowly rises up. And it's like a sort of medium length lens and it looks very classical and and standard. It's a very jarring stylistic change in the middle of the scene. And what happened was apparently they shot the scene as planned and they had the station booked off and they had a small amount of time and they went in and got it. But Lehman wasn't happy with the energy of the scene. So he went back in with Matt Damon without permits, without clearing anything off and just followed him with the camera and just shot him going around. So you get these couple of handheld shots at the beginning of the scene where he's walking around. Things are chaotic. Apparently they were like, they had to cut fairly quickly between these shots and they had to stay so tight on him because people would recognize Matt Damon. And so you could only get little snippets of shots. And the effect of that, I think is like, it's, it, it feels like a bit of a desperate, uh, improvised situation, you know, like, and it, it kind of works in that, like, he's trying not to get recognized, right? He's yeah. trying not to be seen. I think the problem is that it doesn't feel of a piece with virtually anything else in the film. Yes. And especially that la- that very elegant dolly that closes it. So I think the reason why they use that dolly instead of a handheld shot is because it's kind of important that we linger on Bourne's face in that moment as he's taking in what he's seeing. And uh, he kind of like makes a little decision. Um, you, you couldn't really do that by cutting three times on his face or maybe they didn't have the footage for that. Um, and so you get just this mishmash of styles within a single scene. And I think the, the funny thing is that the 
handheld stuff in that sequence is some of the most like formally surprising and interesting stuff in the whole film. And it really serves as mm. a clear precursor to the Greengrass films. And you also have the, I think, I think the, the clearest precursor as a whole is probably the, the shootout scene with Clive Owen, which I think beautifully transitions between a more descriptive Doug Lehman-ish style, if you can call it. I guess Doug Lehman style is kind of everything. Um, but a more descriptive traditionalist style to a very shaky handheld uh, moment of confrontation. Um, I think it juggles those two tones or actually it more like elegantly glides between those ends of the spectrum. It works very well. Doug Lehman did not return for the Born Supremacy. The word is that he didn't get along with Matt Damon uh, or Matt Damon did not appreciate his direction style and he had vi different visions for the film. Yeah, I think that goes for the studio as well where the... Uh... The post-production was tortured. Yeah, they, the shoot was extremely protracted and he kept doing things that the studio didn't approve of mm -hmm. and there was just no chance of him coming on for a sequel. Um, and But no one expected there to be a sequel. Everyone expected the film to be a box office disaster. But it really? wasn't. It was, it was, yeah, it was, oh, uh, no. it was, they, it was seen as like a, a kind of a foregone thing among the participants of like, okay, well, that's not gonna, that's not gonna make an impact. Well, you know, but, um, the same thing happened with Ultimatum, funny enough. Uh, no one expected it, everyone expected it to be trash <laughs> because it was, it was also another uh, infamously, um, uh, rough shoot, but we'll get to that. Um, so what happens is one of the producers ends up seeing the 2002 Paul Greengrass film, Bloody Sunday, essentially goes, uh, why, why don't we just hire hire that guy to make our next film look like that? And um, they hired Paul Greengrass, who comes in, and I actually don't think they got the Bloody Sunday aesthetic. They got they got the, in, in broad strokes, but there are some very key differences between Bloody Sunday and Born Supremacy. But the result is Born Supremacy, which is almost indescribably chaotic. I actually, when I shoot films with handheld cameras, for example, I have what's called the Paul Greengrass meter, where, where where 10 would be, I think, something like the Born Supremacy, United 93, Born Ultimatum. Those three are kind of the... The height of that style, yeah. Yeah, the height of his style, I think, both in quality and in extremity. Those two go hand in hand with Greengrass, it seems. We should quickly describe Bloody Sunday. It's a docudrama about the 1972 massacre of civilians in Derry, uh, per perpetrated by the British military. Um, and that film is shot in a way that I think is most reminiscent of uh, Janusz Kaminski and Steven Spielberg's work on Saving Private Ryan, in that it is shot almost entirely with handheld, in this case 16 millimeter cameras, um, in actually quite long takes. Um, the editing pacing of that film is slower than any other, other movies we're talking about today, including The Bourne Identity, but it doesn't feel that way because it is incredibly chaotic visually uh, with its camera work. It is shot almost entirely on long lenses. I should probably describe what long lenses do to handheld camera work eventually. Um, using roving frames that often leave you looking at just an out-of-focus image wondering where you're looking. It is al shot almost entirely in close-up with camera operators who feel like they're trying to find the frames as you go along. There is considerable overlap between this aesthetic and the aesthetics that define Paul Greengrass's Hollywood work, but some key differences too. So yeah, that's that's Bloody Sunday, and he comes on, and apparently what the first sequence they shoot is the car chase, uh, which is, blows my mind. Yeah, the car chase in The Bourne Supremacy, which is one of like 
five or six car chases that I've seen that could like lay claim to being the best movie car chase. I don't even think we can talk about it before we talk about <laughs> like what the movie is in general. There's a difference between the Born Supremacy and the Born Identities stylistic dexterity, where, um, as we said, the Born Identity uh, will move between totally different visual styles, uh, sometimes within a single scene. And often it doesn't feel like they're flowing naturally together or, or informing each other. With the Born Supremacy, there is a unifying style throughout the entire thing, which is a sense of instability. Um, most often the defining trait is the camera work is just very, very shaky. I'll say that Paul Greengrass's Born movies have exactly two gears. Um, High and extremely high um, for, for the degree of uh, intensity of handheld camera operation. So handheld camera work. We haven't actually talked about it. We haven't done an episode on handheld yet, which shocks me. But handheld camera work is a bit of a misnomer. Usually you're not literally holding the camera in your hands. You usually have a shoulder rig, um, which is a device that lets you place the camera on your shoulder with two grips that you're holding it with. The Born Supremacy and Ultimatum were shot with a combination of shoulder rigs, wire cameras, which is the camera literally stream, stringing along on a wire, and actual, like, literally holding the camera in the operator's hands. This creates a shaky feel, as you might expect, right? It's like, hold, you know, we've all taken probably cell phone videos. We know what that looks like. That doesn't explain everything. Usually, so a good counterexample is the movie Jaws. There's an interview with the cinematographer Bill Butler where he claims that one of his proudest achievements was the fact that nobody ever realized that Jaws was shot largely on handheld cameras. That was because they were shooting at sea and handheld cameras using the human body as a shock absorber was actually smoother than shooting on a tripod when you're on a small boat. However, those were camera operators that were trying to keep the frame steady. Paul Greengrass does not do that. He does the opposite and he achieves this through a few means. One is very long lenses. When a lens is long, AKA telephoto, AKA zoomed in, AKA 35 millimeters or longer when you're on a super 35 film strip. Oh my God. This magnifies, hey, this is film formally, Will. This magnifies the amount of shake, right? The longer your lens, the shakier the shot looks. Second, they encourage the camera operators to find their frames as they went along. And moreover, for still dialogue scenes, they apparently had assistants behind the camera operators shaking their shoulders. Uh, which I think is wonderful. I would love to. I, I, I'm so sad that no, I have never seen any behind-the-scenes video of that. That would be hysterical. Um, <laughs> would. But yeah, I mean, why doesn't that exist? And all this combined to create an aesthetic that was willfully shaky, right? There was a petition going around around 2007. It was a fund to buy Paul Greengrass a tripod, right? That was the <laughs> level of discourse around this stuff. And you know, it, it shows in the film, right? If you compare the handheld operation in this film to something like Jaws or something like Ichimama Tambien, which is also largely shot handheld, um, there's a world of difference. And the effect is you know, massively destabilizing. I actually, I should also mention that there's an extreme use of foreground objects. When you have a foreground, midground, and background in the same shot, three layers of depth or more, um, this further highlights the movement of your camera. The Born Ultimatum is the most intense version of this. They kind of siphoned off any remaining vestiges of like dolly shots in that movie. But the Born Supremacy is nearly there. And uh, the axis of action is pretty prevalent within, say, dialogue scenes in the Born Supremacy. But even then, there's a fair number of scenes where they just 
cross that axis like crazy. It's, it is definitely a tool, not a rule. I will say though, as far as the axis goes, continuity of motion is very well adhered to, especially during the car chase. Yeah, this is a good moment to talk about why the axis works. And the reason the axis works is because screen direction is a very clear way to establish graphically the relationships between things. And so I'd love to talk about one scene in particular that I think is a great example of using other techniques to establish graphically um, the relative positions and relationships between different things in a scene. Sometimes the simplicity of action allows Greengrass and his editors a lot of license to ignore all these standard tools of spatial establishment and coherence. So there's a scene where Jason Bourne is just running away. You know, he's been spotted, he's been made, so he needs to get away. So what he does is he decides, okay, I'm going to run for a train. And if I can get on a train and there's no other cops on the train, I can disappear. So the trains are on a bridge that's above water. So he reaches this bridge and he runs up the stairs and all these cops pull up in their cars uh, in, on the side of the road on both sides of the bridge and get out of their cars and run up the bridge after Bourne. So how is this covered? Well, there's a few ways to do this. If we wanted a very clear and simple action, axis of action kind of thing, we might have a general sense of Bourne running right to left. And then we cut to cops behind him getting out of their cars and running right to left. And then on the other side of the bridge, you know, we get a wide that like pans over and then we get a closer shot of cops getting out of their cars and running left to right. And that would be a perfectly fine way to graphically establish the relationships of the scene. Uh, that's not what Greengrass and uh, his editing team do, though. So we see Bourne running up the steps away from us. That is, he doesn't, there's not a clear axis that he's following on the camera. He's running away from us. Uh, and then we get a shot of cops running left to right up the stairs and then Bourne running up the stairs towards us and then cops running to the right by the road and, you know, uh, getting out of their car. And we don't lose track of what's going on here. So what's going on here is that Bourne is moving mostly along the Z axis or the Z axis. That is towards or Thanks for translating that for our American listeners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it, the Z axis just means towards or away from your perspective. So that gives a bit of a sense of him being static within the frame. Why does it give a bit of a sense of him being a bit static within the frame? Well, there's two reasons. One is that uh, it, he's mostly being shot with quite long lenses, and those tend to see have the effect of de-emphasizing uh, Z-axis movement because they visually flatten space. Uh, the other reason is that the movie is in a very wide aspect ratio. It's 2.39 to 1, meaning that the frame is very wide. Um, and that means that X-axis movement, horizontal movement, tends to feel really graphically emphatic. And it also tends to mean that Z-axis movement is a little less emphatic. So the effect is that Bourne is staying in place and the police are running to the left and right. So the implication graphically is that they're closing in on him. They're coming in from the left of the frame and the right of the frame. They're closing in on him in the center. And this is just all established through cutting, through montage. And, and then we get a little burst of horizontal movement when he gets to the top of the steps, Bourne does, and reaches the train. But then after that, uh, we get a whole new set of editing structures for the remainder of the scene. <laughs> so these are just examples of how Greengrass's Bourne style counteracts the pitfalls of that style where you know you can you can't follow what's going on you're kind of throwing all these rules to the wind without creating any clear rules 
the fact that it uses so many strategies can make it difficult to follow, but that kind of lends to the air of desperate improvisation, right? Like you're improvising new rules as you go along, just the same way Bourne has to kind of improvise new ways of getting out of situations. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that these strategies are coherent in and of themselves, like the way I just described it, you know, it does, it does kind of click together. That means that you can follow it and not to get too far into the, oh, this makes you feel like the character idea, which I don't think is what these movies are really trying to do. But when you manage to pretty much decode what's going on on the fly in these movies, it, it does make you in a way feel a little bit like a badass because you're decoding what's happening, you're following it, and you're right there alongside Bourne, which I think is part of what makes them satisfying and, and crowd-pleasing popcorn movies. Pokingress has repeatedly claimed that the motivation for the specific camera editing style was to put you in Jason Bourne's kind of headspace. But I, like you, don't think that mm. is the reason why it works. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't think it's a coherent reason because every single scene, even the scenes without Bourne in them, are shot that exact way. <laughs> but the effectiveness of all this camera editing stylizations, I think, is multifold. And I, like you, agree that it likely, that it, has very little to do with putting us in Bourne's headspace, although it has a little bit. I think that there, it does have that effect, you know, where you do kind of see how his mind works with these, uh, you know, shot reverse shots between him and various stimuli around him. But I think a great example of how this methodology works to find alternative methods of portraying action is an early scene in the Bourne supremacy where Bourne is at an embassy, he is being held, and then he escapes by beating up to agents uh, holding him at around 31 minutes. And there are five shots in quick succession that are all essentially match cuts. They're all shot from about the same camera position and a couple of the cuts don't even change shot size or angle significantly. And what those cuts do is they truncate Bourne's action ever so slightly to obscure his exact movements even though what he's doing is very clear in terms of the effect of it, right? He punches two guys, disarms them, that's it. That's, that's the whole action, right? Yeah. But what these edits do is they cut out key moments of, of the action. Um, they make it harder to see, for example, the third time he punches the CIA agent. And the shakiness also serves to obscure the choreography. And this has a few effects. One is it makes it seem like Bourne is moving faster than the human eye can even process, right? Uh, it, it, it emphasizes his superhumanness. I think it also lends an air of authenticity to the whole thing. And I don't think this is earned authenticity. And I don't think this is any more authentic than a wide shot would have been. I don't subscribe to that really. But I think that using various techniques to suggest authenticity where there is none is a that's a tool as old as cinema <laughs> it's a legitimate strategy and what paul greengrass is doing is by borrowing the aesthetics of newsreel photographers borrowing our associations with those you know that handheld jump cutty style you know in the context of a wartime correspondent for example that is entirely due to necessity that is entirely because you know 
when you're under fire, for example, you're not going to get coherent footage likely. <laughs> you're going to get footage that has to be chopped together and is shaky, right? That's, you know, we, we've seen the footage from D-Day and stuff, you know, like we've seen, we've all seen John Ford's Midway, of course. But Paul Greengrass is essentially reappropriating that to make his action film feel as if it is caught unawares, um, which I think is a perfectly fine way to go about it. And I think this also helps him achieve his tonal goals. Um, the Born Supremacy, in particular, is a film that takes itself quite seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a film where part of the impact comes from the verisimilitude of everything. The idea that it feels like that this could happen in our reality, not this fantasy world of space lasers, right? Um, and this is, I think, a great pairing of extreme stylization with a tonal goal. So... That's part of why I love this scene, right? Because it is pa- it's patently ridiculous that Jason Bourne would be able to disarm and escape this secure room. It's not that believable when you really think about it, right? But in the moment when you see him disarm those two guys, you're not thinking, oh, how do you do that? You're thinking, wow, that happened so fast. I can't even keep up. Jesus Christ, this Jason Bourne. Well, it's a, there's a ba- yeah, there's a balance going on there. It's not quite. I can't see what Jason Bourne did. You see each individual no, punch. You, you see it, every single shot depicts an action, but it ever so slightly obscures that action. Yeah, it, so it that, cuts out like half of every action. Yeah, half. so that the yeah. logistics behind the action are obscured, but yeah. the effect of it is emphasized. Yeah. And even the handheld camera operator, if you watch it even frame by frame, which I do, um, is in real time reacting to the punch. When someone throws a punch, they are whip panning. Um, yeah. There's a technique that I love and I will use till the end of time. It is so great. There's a reason it works. There's a reason why when we watch, we don't instinctively think, oh, they took out half his punch. Oh, they took out half that punch. And that is that because the camera is consistently moving, we don't sense any uh, truncated movement, right? It feels like continuous movement because the camera is continuously reacting and moving as these cuts are occurring. I think this is where we can get into the alchemy of the camera movement and the editing here because part of the effect of this and i think this this really comes to the fore actually in the born ultimatum more than anything especially the waterloo station sequence uh, i think that's the scene where this come becomes most apparent is that because paul greengrass has gone to such great lengths to to destabilize his images and abstract them to a certain degree but not completely and to edit in an extremely fast and chaotic way, what he's really doing is de-emphasizing the effect of each individual cut. Roger Ebert, in his review of The Born Ultimatum, uh, I think has a very telling, almost misdiagnosis of the formal tools of that film, um, in which he says, Paul Greengrass creates, or seems to create, amazingly long takes, but does it without calling attention to them. Whether they are actually unbroken stretches of film or are spliced together by invisible wipes, what counts is that they present such mind-blowing action that I forgot to keep track. And I think that both misdiagnoses the tools used, but perfectly describes the effect, where each individual shot stops mattering as much as the flow from one shot to the next. There are so many cuts between, for example, similar pieces of coverage or coverage that is not similar, but have visceral similarities because the shots are so shaky and zoomed in, essentially, that um, we don't register each individual proper edit any differently than we would a two-frame whip pan or even just the 
idling, very chaotic state of each shot. Each frame within each shot is so different from the last due to the shakiness that each cut doesn't present a rupture in the way that it does in classical cinema. This creates what I would call almost a river of imagery where we are floating around in this kind of ecstatic space as a viewer, seeing everything and nothing. It's like omniscience on crack. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my favorite example of this is the part of Waterloo Station where they go into a little uh, hallway in the side, like a little employees only hallway. And Bourne gets into a fight with like four guys. And it's my favorite piece of hand-to-hand combat editing in the Bourne series. It's just a, it's just astonishing stuff. Like the, just the way that the movement um, of each camera movement and the movement of the choreography flow into each other from shot to shot. Like if you just study it and look at the movement frame to frame, it is absolutely incredible stuff to behold. Um, we'll we'll have we'll have a link to the to the sequence in our description, but it's the it's also the sequence that appropriately ends with David Strathairn recognizing Jason Bourne in a uh, in surveillance footage and saying, "Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne." Jason Bourne. Oh, it's perfect. And for a it's moment, perfect. you think this is going to be the best Bourne movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for, it goes in and out. Jason, I mean, David Strathairn. I mean, he drove off the roof. What? He drove off he the drove roof. Off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Anyways, seeing that in this, I mean, uh, I, like the cheer the audience gave in the cinema in 2007 when I saw that was unlike most things I've seen in life. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, I mean, like it's dumb. It's, it's incredibly <laughs> dumb, but boy, oh boy, it is so great. Um, the physical impossibility of that roof jump, especially, just makes it, makes it. But anyways, one hand-to-hand scene that really, spo- that really I think, exemplifies a lot of the strengths of Paul Greengrass's um, style here is the, um, um, there's a fight with Martin Chokash in about halfway through the Born Supremacy in a very nice modernist house that I would best describe as it doesn't depict a fight so much as it makes it you feel like you've just been in a fight. Um, it actually has longer takes than most of Paul Greengrass's scenes in these movies, but the camera work is at least as violently shaky as the actors' performances in this very chaotic fight scene, and and it, it almost feels like the camera is not so much at that point even a newsreel crew or whatever it's often including me compares it to um but it almost feels like the camera is a participant in this fight and the camera is feeling the same adrenaline as the characters um it's a great externalization of the panic of the characters and i think that um i don't know this speaks to to me the idea that the camera work doesn't necessarily have to be motivated by any one thing throughout these movies. It's it's a tool that is used to different ends, right? In one moment, it can be an externalization of Jason Bourne's, you know, incredible ability to process stimuli. In this scene, it's an externalization of the panic felt by both these characters. In other scenes, it is lending authenticity, and oftentimes it's doing all of these things, right? In other scenes, the tension comes from the heightened point of view of the camera even, right? Because the camera is not depicting the action, it is depicting the camera operator's inability to depict the action. And that's what heightens the action. And in this case, the camera operator is, I think, performing, jumping around as much as the actors are. The camera operator is is framing not to depict the action, 
they are framing to participate almost yeah they're, they're framing to, to participate in the action it actually brings me back to uh christopher doyle's commentary on chunking express where he describes the camera as in a dance with the actors um this is the camera in a brutal ballet of punching each other in the face i think if there's one difference like over like kind of overarching stylistic difference between the born ultimatum and the born supremacy it's the born ultimatum is less dependent on logic to function. And I think that operates at almost all yes. levels of the film. Like plotting wise, it is. Thematically, yeah, thematically it's illogical. The dialogue is kind of <laughs> dumb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the action is illogical. And sometimes that gets you these like big, awesome one up moments of i'm i'm in your office right now idiot that's a line jason board says <laughs> yeah. um, <but. laughs> well i mean we should contextualize a little like this film was essentially shot without a script at least without a finished script and that um uh, basically okay long story short paul greengrass tony gilroy did not get along in the second film tony gilroy is the writer of all three of the firstborn films kind of the writer of ultimatum but not really kind of the writer where he apparently handed in a single draft that matt damon publicly publicly trashed in a very out of character moment from matt damon <laughs> or for like major hollywood stars throwing their colleagues under the bus but um, he called it a, what he, he called yeah. it a career ender it's great <laughs> and I mean, this is a career ender. <laughs> yeah and i mean i think it makes it's an easier pill to swallow that, you know tony gilroy had his best success after that but yeah so they essentially they went into production with no one on board happy with the script so they essentially were writing the pages as they went along um and it shows it really shows um, yeah but there's, Anyways, that, there's yeah. one really great kind of side effect of this, and that is in the formal space of the film, particularly in the editing. There's a scene in Tangier where Bourne is fighting a, a super assassin guy named Desh, right? They're fighting in a house in this room with a window to one side, a blank wall to the other side. And Desh has managed to subdue Bourne. On a purely formal level, this might be my favorite hand-to-hand comment. Yeah, scene. defensible. Their eventual confrontation in the apartment is stunning. Desh manages to subdue Bourne. He gets him on his back and he starts punching him. And Julia Stiles is kind of watching this from the back of the room. And she goes, uh-oh, if Bourne dies, I'm toast. And she uh, goes and grabs uh, <laughs> Desh from behind and subdues him from him, pulls him off of Bourne, you know, grabs him by the mouth and uh, it works. She, it, she gets him off of Bourne. And then the interesting thing happens, which is that Desh, of course, being a super assassin, easily subdues Julia Stiles. He throws his left elbow back and hits her in the face with it. And then he throws his right elbow back and hits her in the face a second time. And then he kicks her and she falls backwards, apparently unconscious. So what happens here is that Desh throws his left elbow and we're watching this. We're looking at them uh, from their right. Uh, there's a wall to their left. Um, we seem to throw that left elbow. Okay. Then we cut to the opposite side, apparently, because we can see the window that's on the other side of the room. And he throws his right elbow. And the window is on their left. So what's happened here is that the second elbow throw i'm pretty certain was in, invented in editing it was created in editing they took a different angle they got of him hitting her with his left elbow and they thought it would be good if he hit her twice so it made it really clear that she's been knocked out and they flipped that shot 
that alternate angle they got from left to right so that it appears that his right elbow is hitting her. I'll, 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 I'll put images of this on, on the show notes at filmformally.com. <laughs> all will be, all will be revealed if you're a little unclear on what it is. But the point is that Greengrass is counting on us not noticing that the space around them has flipped. He's counting on the fact that we're orienting ourselves mostly through the already established placement of the characters. We know Julia Stiles is behind him. We know that Jason Bourne is in front of him. And we already saw him hit her with his left elbow. And now we saw him hit her with his right elbow. And that's going to be more important for us in our understanding of the space than the window in the background of a shot. And the reason for that is because we don't have any reason to think that the general spatial relationships of the characters have changed, our brains don't really pick up on that cue, on that cue of the window being to the left. We don't need anything to reestablish the space for us. So Greengrass counts on that fact and uses also the fluidity of motion between the cuts in order to keep us really clearly situated. So it's illogical and it's it's you you could see it causing some degree of confusion, but it we can still stay within the scene because there's an understanding of which principles are actually doing the work of orienting us within the action of the scene, which is neat, right? And that's like, that's using breaks in logic to really good effect in order to heighten. I mean, the reason Born Ultimatum is so over the top, partly, is because it embraces those leaps in logic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he drives off the roof. Yeah. Well, the the roof thing, can we, can we talk about how dumb the roof Please. thing is? Yeah. There's like a vertical barrier. This car leaps over. It does, there's no justification for it. It just, it's an, he's driving just a consumer automobile and the car leaps over the barrier when going n- not a considerable speed. Yeah. He's driving pretty fast for going backwards. He knocks a car pretty hard, but. He does, but there's no way that car could have leapt over that barrier. It's like a, it's barely more diagonal than like a 90 degree barrier <laughs> exactly there, there's no way that it could have happened but it kind of makes me love that moment more yeah <laughs> yeah oh, it's just boy. absurd and i mean the the flip side of that is that the car chase in the born ultimatum ends with like born gets pinned within his car and then he gets smashed so that his car is between the car that's pushing his car and a big concrete pillar and he just gets smashed against that pillar. But for some reason, Bourne's the one who walks out okay, even though he has apparently been bested <laughs> by all. I, I actually think that that scene, that that beat, um, exemplifies, I think, both the strengths and the maybe negative temptations of the style that Greengrass adopts, where he both uses it to um, obscure beats that are coherent right not fully obscure but he uses them to make beats that are coherent but maybe stretch credibility a little a lot easier to swallow and kind of fit into a aesthetic that feels like it's prizing verisimilitude however when you have a beat that is genuinely kind of incoherent and vague like that he uses that exact same aesthetic approach to give it a conclusion just right in an arbitrary conclusion he uses that aesthetic to connect those two dots without really earning it yeah the same kind of obscurity that lets coherent beats kind of whiz by um is also used there to kind of paper over a blatant plot hole really yeah and i think this gets at 
I mean, what makes it more galling is that it is almost the exact same move that Bourne uses to defeat uh, the his his opponent in the car chase of Bourne supremacy. Yeah, Carl Urban. Um, except Carl Urban's the one pinned pinned who gets rammed into a concrete barrier. And obviously, Carl Urban is the one who is incapacitated at the end of that car chase. Well, I, I, th- I think that that car chase, though, has a very clear... The, the Bourne supremacy car chase with Carl Urban, there is a very clear moment where Bourne, at the very last second, gets the upper hand mm-hmm. by T-boning him <laughs> into a barrier. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bourne should have clearly also probably been killed in that car accident, but the geography of it sells w- pretty well why Carl Urban w- would have been more deader. Yeah, <laughs> and meanwhile, when he gets T-boned into a barrier in Ultimatum, it seems pretty clear that Born is on the losing end of that bet. And yet he walks away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing, is that supremacy absolutely uh, uh, stretches things sometimes, right? Like, he's still an action hero. He still uh, he still can endure a lot more than even the most highly trained assassin in the world plausibly could. Mm-hmm. There's a clear, implicit set of rules of how much he can withstand that that car chase and its results still fall within. And this is this is what gets to why I like Born Supremacy more than Ultimatum. Uh, like I think Born Supremacy is a masterpiece, which is that the Born Supremacy, uh, especially its action scenes, follows a chain of logic. This is what I like to say about action scenes: is that usually, not always, but usually, a great action scene in a movie you can define its greatness largely through it finding and following and successfully executing both coherently and in an aesthetically exciting or otherwise effective way, that chain of logic. I think it's worth noting, too, that that chain of logic doesn't have to be rooted in, for example, physics. No. It can be rooted in, for example, emotional stakes. Yeah. Right? So I think a good example of this is the ending of Speed Racer, mm-hmm. where that the, the chain of logic in that car chase is not, uh, what's his name? The main character's name is Speed Racer? Speed. Is it Speed Racer? <laughs> His name is Speed Racer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, the, 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 whether Speed Racer wins or loses in the climax of the movie Speed Racer has less to do with his moment-to-moment driving and beating his opponents than coming to an emotional cathartic moment, right? Uh, the things click in his head, and then that is manifested, but that film has establish that as that's how things work in that wacky universe although uh, speed racer does have moments even within the races of like the 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 start of the desert race for example actually does have a clear set of kind of rules like they're they they stretch physics but the the degree to which they stretch physics follows a set of rules and logic but he doesn't the logic behind the physics in that case though are a function of the storytelling yes. stakes. Yes. They're a function of, like for example, when Bourne T-bones the guy, it's not because he he has morally one-upped him. It's because he's got his car into the right place. Yeah. In Speed Racer, when Speed Racer's car breaks down, it's because of the enormous capitalist machinery around him and him buckling under that, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, it's, it's an expression of the thematic stakes in a way that in the Bourne films, the fight scenes aren't. Yeah. With the thinnest of physical justification, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, 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 um, Speed Racer's car breaks down because of emotional, of his emotional arc, basically. Um, which I think is great. Speed Racer, it's a good movie. It's a wonderful movie. I'm looking forward to Matrix Four. That comes out this year. Oh no, we got a fourth Matrix oh. this year. 
you're not looking forward to it. I don't know. You're man. dreading it. I'm kind of dreading. I really want it to be good. Well, I don't know. I would love. Uh, I I don't. I'm not some. I I follow the consensus that the Matrix sequels were not very good movies. But like, oh my gosh, I would take them any day of the week over a lot of better movies. To be honest, but it feel it feels like it's a director jail type situation. You know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> of. You know, like 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 their last few films did not turn a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how Sense Eight did, but that's television. Yeah. Um, so you know, the studio that would fund Matrix Four may not care so much about Sense Eight, but um, I really want Matrix Four to succeed. So um, Lana Wachowski can do whatever she wants. I'm sure <laughs> Matrix Four will be crazy. I'm not terribly worried about Matrix Four not being crazy enough oh it's probably going to be crazy but i hope it i hope it makes a lot of money and that's enough for me if (laughs) crazy crazy is enough for me i mean yeah let's go back to talking about the second best spy movie of the 21st century um cena royale (laughs) no no it's like it's a solid seventh or eighth where were we before we started talking about the matrix four Uh, oh yeah speed racer channel logic uh channel logic yeah yeah so I, I like all three of the original four movies to varying degrees. I really enjoy Ultimatum uh, in spite of its major flaws. Born <laughs> Identity is all right. It has some great stuff in it. It has some really bad stuff in it. It doesn't have anything mind-bendingly great. But Supremacy, one thing I wanted to mention is that it is such a great confluence of uh, form and narrative that one of my one thing that really works about it is I, we're not in Bourne's headspace, right? We're always a little bit behind him, right? We're always kind of what's closer is that we're picking up the pieces of what Bourne has done as we go along. Like we never actually find out Bourne's motives until like the second last scene of the movie, <laughs> like mm-hmm. like his, what he actually wants, what he's actually trying to accomplish for the vast majority of the movie. We don't know. And that's great, you know, like that fits in so perfectly with the style that has this man moving a little faster than we can register, faster than the shots can capture, faster than the edits could possibly even keep up with if we tried. And it all is following a guy who's just one step ahead of us. And then suddenly in the second last scene, the pace just finally stops dead when he spills his guts. And that's wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a product of a script that is like a, a very unconventional spy movie script it, like it's it's my favorite piece of writing that tony gilroy's done not his most like opulently um successful work from a literary p- perspective but i i think the risks that it takes and the way they pay off is just beautiful and it's a great example too of um of the director's style that he brought to that script just working so intuitively and so hand in glove with not just the moment-to-moment mechanics of the story, but the overarching structure and ideas of that script itself. It's just, it's just, it's a, it's an absolutely wonderful piece of popcorn cinema. And you can even honestly watch it without born identity and pretty much pick up on all the essential plot beats. Like it is though, it is easily the one of the three movies that I would like save from the fire. Then they made two more. Yeah. They made the first three. So Born Leg- they made two more. True to form, we can pretty much just not talk about the Born Legacy. Um, it essentially is a movie with a shocking lack of its own legacy. It's Tony Gilroy teaming up with um, Robert Elswit to kind of 
like loosely ape the Paul Greengrass style when it suits them and not when it doesn't. Um, it's much more consistent than identity stylistically, but it's just kind of there. Um, it's got its it's got some interesting stuff going on script wise, but we're not a script podcast, so no. But Jason Bourne is moderately interesting. So there was a power struggle. Tony Gilroy, um, I I forget which film he kind of like negotiated this with, but he got the opportunity to direct a Bourne movie, which was Legacy, and then that was him trying to reclaim the franchise from. Paul Greengrass, and as this so often does, it became a pissing contest where Paul Greengrass, four years later, made Jason Bourne without Tony Gilroy as his attempt to reclaim the Bourne franchise back and probably to make money. Um, So, yeah, Jason Bourne essentially draws in the same playbook as the second and third films that Paul Greengrass did. There are some key differences where it's basically a half-assed version (laughs) <laughs> of this of, it is yeah, yeah. um it's a half-assed version of the of the types of gestures he made in supremacy and ultimatum um that's all that's all i can say really what i think is most interesting actually first thing is barry Ackroyd shot it not oliver wood and i was very disappointed other than the lighting lighting's great but the actual it looks fine it's okay it just hasn't it lacks identity <clears throat> and I don't know it, it's basically watching it's like watching you know like when like old rock stars go back on stage or like Gene Kelly and like late movies does like low stress versions versions of old dance routines um, it's like that or, or you know back, back on like those that's entertainment specials when Gene Kelly and like you know Frank Sinatra would just like walk through the routines so you can see what they're doing but they're not actually doing the impressive stuff because yeah. they're old man mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's that However, the reaction to it was really interesting. With some exceptions, the overwhelming reaction to Jason Bourne was, oh, it's not any good, but at least Paul Greengrass is off the shaky cam and it's kind of watchable now. Yeah. One notable exception. I want to thank Tim Brayton for being the only critic I read that was like, no, <laughs> this is much worse. <laughs> it is a straight downward trajectory of interestingness, Jason Bourne. Yeah. Yeah, and the reaction speaks to... A really unfortunate trend in criticism, which is that interesting directors would be better off if they shaved off the most interesting versions of themselves or the the most interesting parts of themselves. You know, the not consensus, but a common line of thought for Wes Anderson, especially prior to Grand Budapest Hotel, was wouldn't it be great if Wes Anderson just like kind of didn't slather his films with his stu- with his particular stylistic gestures? Yeah, yeah. The the Rushmore was his best film, kind of. Yeah, position. or even like I, I liked Bottle Rocket. Yeah, <laughs> I like I like Bottle Rocket, and I think that th- that general line of thinking, as far as Wes Anderson goes, has luckily kind of died out a little, not completely, but a little. I think that train of thought really misses the point of why art is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to not to put too fine a point on it, but it's it, I don't know, it's it's like asking you know Pollock to like make representational art you know it's like where we be if you know where we'd be if if we followed the advice of all those critics we'd be making marvel movies yeah that's all we'd be making right it's 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 what makes the born ultimatum and supremacy so fascinating is the shaky cam it is the stuff that people hate (laughs) and i would not trade that motion sickness for the world you know yeah i i think I don't begrudge Greengrass uh, moving on 
from that style. I think I think that's fine. And even if his new style is less effective, I think that's fine. We should be fine with artists exploring new avenues mm-hmm. and and expressing themselves in ways that suit them, even when they're not necessarily as good as what they used to do you know i i hate the idea of just asking them to keep playing the hits because yeah that's kind of the dark side to what i'm proposing actually i guess exactly is, yeah. yeah but i but i think the flip side to that is that you know you're probably not the kind of director who can make <coughs> oh my gosh <sighs> who can make the born ultimatum again or who can make the born supremacy again no and that is patently what they are trying to do in Jason Bourne. <laughs> yes. They're trying to do that, but half-assed. Yeah. Really. And I mean, I, I actually, you know, the direction of that movie is far, far from the thing that sinks it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, it's a pretty well-directed movie, I would say, on the whole. It is. You know, if that film had a good script and performances by actors who cared, um, that, that it would be a perfectly fine movie, but it wouldn't be as interesting to me as The Bourne Supremacy and Ultimatum. Yeah, there's a great uh, line from the from this uh, comedy sketch about George Lucas getting uh, like asking a 12 year old for advice on making a new Star Wars movie. And uh, it's just like the worst set of ideas imaginable. And he lets the kid direct it. And then at the very end, this newspaper headline that pops up and says um, new Star Wars movie, total garbage, fourth best in series. And that's that's kind of not not that extreme, but that's kind of how I feel about Jason Bourne. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, oh wow, this is this has a lot of huge problems. It's probably the third best one. <laughs> uh, is it? I, I think Identity's better. It's tough because I mean, there's Identity has stuff I care about in it. It has characters I like. But Jason Bourne um, I has weird energy, you know. <laughs> It's got Does some it? weird energy I, I to mean, it. Imagine watching Jason Bourne not having watched Ultimatum and Supremacy. You would think this has some weird energy, for sure. It does. I mean, even the stuff that's bad in it. Like, I I feel like I fixate on Alicia Vikander's performance a lot because it's <laughs> so inexplicable. <laughs> but I kind of... It's a very strange thing. It's part of... Weirdly, so just for those of you who haven't read my letterbox entry on it, Alicia Vikander's performance in the film is... I don't know if you agree, Will, but it is like... It's a raging dumpster fire. Of a, of a of a performance, it is it is so strange. And yeah, I don't know if I call it a dumpster fire, but it is very. It weird. feels like she's doing a bit. And it's not successful. Yeah, no, um, but it's such a it's such a weird, inexplicable bundle of acting gestures that I find it very magnetic and more interesting than just about anything in the Born Legacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to besmirch Vikander. She's a wonderful actor, but good grief. Um, I guess everyone like there's better actors have had worse performances. Jason Bourne in a lot of ways represents a partial reversion to the mean on the part of action movies and critics. I mean, it is again, almost impossible to overstate the influence that the Bourne supremacy has had on the action movie landscape. Anytime you see an action scene where it's like, cut 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 really really shaky like there is an almost direct lineage between that in like a hollywood action movie or in non-hollywood action movies uh of today and the born supremacy like it was 
an explosion of films that use that style. I mean, there's a famous uh, scene from one of the Taken sequels where Liam Neeson's character, and I say character because it is plainly not Liam Neeson, uh, climbs a fence. And I think it's like 13 cuts in five seconds uh, to show him climbing a fence. And it is hilarious and great and uh, and terrible. 15. Yeah, I just counted 15 cuts. Um, I think this is, I actually used this scene to teach. <laughs> I played it at a quarter speed and we, and I talked through it and um, it's so fascinating because I don't think it's the speed of the editing per se that sinks the scene. No, it's the fact that it violates just about every idea of reasonable geography you can imagine where if, if you watch it, we'll put it in the description, but if you watch I love it, it so much, virtually every shot changes the direction of the action. So you, one shot, he's wa- he's going from screen right to screen left. Next shot, left to right. Next shot, Z-axis towards us. Next shot, Z-axis away from us. And there's no reason for it to do that. And then there's a shot of a dog. Yeah, whoever left that <laughs> dog in the edit, the person who uploaded it to YouTube, like, salute. <laughs> Perfect. Well, here's the thing about that scene and the problem with so many imitators is that there's very few shots in the Born Supremacy or the Born Ultimatum where you can point at them and say, there's no reason for the shot to be here. You can point they them and say you can distinct you, actions usually. You can make good faith arguments, I think, for a lot of that movie of like um, this shot shouldn't be here, or the benefits of having the shot here and what it's trying to do are outweighed by the drawbacks. You can you can absolutely argue that there's people who uh, don't like this movie and have smart argument these movies and have smart arguments against it, and and that's fine. Um, but there's always a purpose to those shots. But unfortunately, part of their influence and effect was to give people license to put in a lot of extra shots that didn't need to be there as a means of papering over a lack of vision and focus in how to stage scenes with a camera. Well, this is the danger of mimicry in general, right? Where it's people mimic the perceived effect of something instead of the mechanics of what creates that effect. Effectively, they don't actually delve into what's working here. The most high octane scenes in the Paul Greengrass films feel like they're a series of unmotivated edits that some somehow cohere into an exciting whole. They're not that, but they're masquerading as that. And people, however, a lot of filmmakers have simply uh, copied the effects with a suitably analyzing the cause. But there are those who did, right? And I want to give the impression that um, we've just moved on and there's no more forward movement or risks being taken i mean mad max fury road is the first film since supremacy that to be made in hollywood like the first big action movie that really feels like it is comparable in its degree of invention and in fact maybe even more inventive Mm -hmm. than supremacy since it's not just recontextualizing techniques that already existed but were usually used in different scenes to different ends but it actually genuinely invents some new techniques while also borrowing a lot of the Greengrass born playbook. I feel like we haven't properly addressed the car chase and supremacy, which I think we both agree is this has to be how we finish the podcast. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I don't know because so for those of you who haven't been fully, who haven't seen the burn supremacy and don't know what we're talking about, there's a car chase in Moscow at the end of the burn supremacy. It's less of a car chase and more of a chase set piece that starts on foot ends in a car. Um, that is one of the most, it might be my favorite car chase in movie history. It's perfect. Um, at least it's perfect. I think it might be the best directed car chase in movie history. Um, it's just one of the most thrilling 
it's like the Sistine Chapel of car chasing. You know, it's one <laughs> yeah. of the most thrilling set pieces I've ever seen in any film. All right. So the scene it is just a perfect example of escalation. Let's start with that. It just starts with Bourne goes to the house that he's been trying to get to uh, for much of the film. And then he realizes, oh, I've been made. Um, someone spotted me. And so then he leaves. And he's still limping a little bit from an injury he sustained in an earlier action scene, which is something I love to see in action movies. <laughs> and so we have that immediate sense of escalation. Oh, he's not at his peak ability. How's he going to get out of this? Then he gets shot. He gets shot in the belly. <laughs> he gets shot in the, the shoulder. shoulder. Shot in the shoulder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's the most obscure reference I'll make in this podcast. <laughs> in history. Um, he gets shot um, and he staggers away. And then he's just, it's for a while, it's just him like staggering his way through like a grocery store stealing stuff. He holds up the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> he just shoplifts and <laughs> threatens his way out. Like, I know we're doing a play by play here, but it is absolutely astonishing stuff. Then he steals a, a taxi, he just shoves the guy <laughs> aside and steals a taxi. And then the super assassin chasing him steals like a huge like no no yeah no it's it's like a, it's like a humvee type land rover yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't know me, will and i don't drive so we don't know cars We're not cars <laughs> but carl urban's super assassin guy just climbs into it and starts chasing um born and then suddenly the entire like moscow police apparatus and carl urban are all chasing born as he's pouring vodka all over his shoulder and what follows is just a long series of born getting smashed by cars at his taxi becoming increasingly difficult to operate <laughs> yeah, yeah well most of the time well here's the it's half car chase half like destruction derby um because he um so, so like the danger of this car chase is not necessarily the police chasing him it is or car urban chasing him it's the fact that they're in like busy rush hour traffic in the middle of moscow so about half the actual car wrecks are just because they're they're in traffic yeah. and, and 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 the absolute frightful danger little thing is incredibly palpable like born gets in about what four or five different car accidents throughout it T to me why it works is really interesting right like the formal approach right i mean you have crash cams are an old thing right um although i would say notably paul greengrass um using digital crash cams which are little cheap cameras you put in positions that are in great danger without an operator so you can get those really close shots um this happens numerous times these films were a pretty big step forward in that technology if i'm not mistaken um they were notable i remember reading an asc article about them back in the day and yeah and, and yet throughout the editing is incredibly fast but it never once is confusing right it and it builds to this crescendo of rhythm that is just incredible it's it, it's symphonic there's an amazing moment in the car chase where carl urban is in his car and he's driving on one side of the river and Matt Damon is in his car and he's driving on the other side. So they're driving parallel and it cuts to these close-ups inside their cars where they're looking forward and then glancing over to the side to look at each other, knowing what each other is. And so you get Matt Damon like looks over and there's a focus rack to Carl Urban's car that he's like glancing over at. And then we see Carl Urban in his car and he glances over and it doesn't focus rack. You just see the kind of blurry yellow of Bourne's taxi. It's just the absolute minimum amount of information required in order to clearly orient you in what's going on. And 
that's just so emblematic of the scene in general. It just it's it really counts on you being able to quickly parse information. Well, then there's the like the climax at the end of the car chase where the two of them are speeding down the middle of a t- tunnel in heavy, heavy traffic, just wrecking cars left and right. There's tons of collateral damage, and there's one point at which their two cars get stuck together, and I'm still not. I've never. never never been sure of the mechanics of how they get stuck together but they do oh they're not and they stuck. End up just I, know, spinning, I know how this happens <laughs> and they're spinning in circles yeah. <laughs> uh, and trying to you know get a clean shot at one another and at that point like every time i, I, I watch the scene often like you know on its own because it's just like such an amazing piece of cutting and cinematography but i at that point i don't even care anymore about what's happening on screen or why it's just this incredible pointillist set of images and sounds and tones that are so pleasing to me rhythmically it, it, it's it's like again it's, it's car chase asmr it's so good so i just just to give you the pleasure of knowing the mechanics of how the cars yeah. get stuck like that how do those cars get stuck together what happens is that when born is shooting out uh the tires on carl urban's vehicle he's making sure that Carl Urban has no traction. So then Bourne does a little like, uh, like he like kind of drifts his car into a T-boning position. And because Urban has no traction, like he can't turn his wheel to counteract that. Um, he's basically forced into a position of being T-boned as Bourne like does that drift into his car. That's that's what's going on there. So it's a, wow. it's a little strategy he's doing to force Urban into a lack of maneuverability so that he can get him into that position, which is which is I'm not I am not claiming that that is plausible, <laughs> but there is a logic to well, it. D- do you have experience with uh, cars, Will? I've been in many. Yeah, I I looked at them. and I was like, <laughs> I see. I see how this works. If you shot out these tires, you could easily T-bone this thing. These movies like they have set pieces in them where you just there are just are not set pieces like the born greengrass movies the first two born greengrass movies there are not set pieces like these in other movies there just aren't no well like in preparation for this i kind of i, I watched a bunch of scenes from you know old tony scott films they've seen saving private ryan battle of algiers zed that sort of thing and films that are often compared to this and Paul Greengrass, at this point in his career at least, had a way of coordinating the camera movements and the editing in such a way that I has this very specific effect that I've never seen anywhere else. Um, that idea of each shot becoming less... The, the idea that each shot kind of blends into the next almost graphically is something that I don't really see in the films, for example, of Tony Scott, where each shot is distinct from the ones around it. Um, he has a different toolkit that overlaps in some ways, but not in others. I think your analogy of pointillism is right on, um, where a lot of these other films are, are using, um, maybe they're using more uh, paint splatters, or maybe they're using mm-hmm. um, ex- like large expressionist brush strokes, right? But Greengrass is the yeah. one who uses pointillism i mean it's not a one-to-one analogy obviously but the idea being that um i it's not that those other films are worse it's just that they're not applying those techniques um towards the same kind of fluid kineticism so you can't you just there's nowhere else to go i mean the closest 
you can get close, right? Like, I mean, absolutely. I think the Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker, I think, does some of that. Yep. Um, um, and I think it does other. I think it, it's also incredibly well directed, but to somewhat different ends. But I think that, that's a little closer yep. than yep. most others. Fury Road's a little farther, but Fury Road absolutely borrows directly some ideas of that, pushing ideas rapidly and making them individual points in part of a larger kinetic movement. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's there. Um, but yeah, basically in just in 2004 and 2007, like Greengrass rewrote the playbook and nobody's been able to quite do the same plays. So yeah, that's uh, I, I guess we don't have a big uh, inspirational finish to uh, to wrap it up with other than to say that uh, these movies. Oh, actually, I, 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 I have a great way to book in this. Oh, good. Um, the song that Elvis Costello played on SNL that transitioned into radio radio was less than zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Thanks, everyone. Uh, <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, our associate producer is Paige Smith. If you like this episode, give us a rating and review us on your podcast service. If you want to help us keep going in uh, more moolah-oriented ways, then you can find us at patreon.com slash filmformally, become a patron of the podcast. You can also find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at FilmFormally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Please.